Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show, where this week we're shoveling snow. Last week we had neighbors mowing their their lawn in a snowstorm. This week we're shoveling snow. Next week we will probably be mowing the lawn. I hope we're mowing the lawn next (laughs) week. Frankly, right now I'd kind of like to be able to see the lawn, but yeah, this weather is crazy. Yeah, I I hear that our friends in Virginia are now getting snow too. So it's yeah, we just passed it to them. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's our gift to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no backsies. <laughs> so you know, last week we we mentioned that we were going to talk about IndyCar this week. So before we get into Formula One, I think it's time. Okay, so IndyCar. So where we last left off, we were coming into race two. The, are they typically Grand Prix? Yeah, I think it is the Grand Prix of Phoenix. No, I think it was the Diamond Dash. Desert Diamond West Valley Phoenix Grand Prix. Yeah, that thing. (laughs) But it was a return, IndyCar's return to Phoenix in several years. Phoenix was, I guess, an original track for IndyCar. It's an oval, so that's the first time we've seen an oval. And, and it's gonna be called a short oval in that the oval is only a mile long. Yeah, which means the cars are making it around it in, what, 20 seconds or something like that? I mean, seriously. Uh, it was 250 laps, um, mile-long oval, steep banks, um, and yet still had four distinct turns. So Yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, it's an oval. It's not a circle. Um. But p- track position, not necessarily front to back, but from low point to high point on those banked turns, seems to be very important. Well, this was also a very different qualifying. Right. You know, what we saw was, what was it, a three, four, four session qualifying format for St. Petersburg. And for this, it was a single session, but it was one driver at a time on the track, two hot laps, and I hope you don't put it into a wall. It was an av- a placement on the grid was an average of two hot laps. Um, they have a green, what they call green flag laps. Mm-hmm. So they're allowed to get up to speed, and the green flag flies. They get two laps. You average the two. They were doing 190 miles per hour on average across all the grid so around wait. a one-mile oval. So wait, it was an aggregate qualifying? It was an aggregate qualifying. We'll get back to that later. Put a pin in it. We'll come back. <laughs> um, but no, they're doing 190 miles an hour around this track. Uh, we had one of the drivers go into a wall. No, it was more than one. It was two or three that, two, that went Two into or three the, ate the yeah. wall? I just remember one uh, one of them, Castro Neves. No, Elio Castro Neves got the pole. He did not end up in the wall. Who got the? Who was in the pole? Who was in the wall? It wasn't Hinchcliffe. Uh, Hinchcliffe did not either. It was two folks down at the bottom. Who started at the bottom? You don't have your start settings. I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> James Hinchcliffe was one of the ones that started at the bottom of the grid. 
Okay. Um, him, he may have spun, but he wasn't the only one. Carlos Munez and Takuma Sato. Yes. Uh, all were down there. And I know Sato definitely hit the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we talked about those 250 laps, but I just want to talk to you about number of pit stops. Okay. For those that did most of the race, that were still on the track, there were two that stopped running because of contact um, during the race. Of those that did it, there were somewhere between three and six pit stops during the race. I just thought that number was kind of incredible. And not just that, but it wasn't just a pit stop for tires, but it was a pit stop for fuel as well. Correct. Um, Because I think they were only estimating to go about 60 laps or so before they needed to get fuel. Correct. So they kind of divided it up in thirds to begin with for the fuel load. Um, And that's that balance to try to keep it light enough to go fast, but put enough fuel that you're not constantly stopping. Now, the winner of this race, Scott Dixon, is known as Iceman. Not to be confused with the Top Gear Iceman. Val Kilmer. That would be the top gun, not top gear. Oh, did I say gear? Yes, you did say top gear. Oh. Or, you know, considering the fact that we're a Formula One show, Kimi Raikkonen, who's known as the Iceman as well. No, he's just non-talkative. Anyway, (laughs) Scott Dixon won the, the race. He led for 155 laps. He took over the lead as the two leaders had problems, um, a little kissing well, the wall was parts of the issues. It actually it wasn't what what the the original pole sitter was Elio Castroneves, who was doing just fine until he got a cut on the inside shoulder of his front tire. Oh, that's right. Uh, of of his right front tire, which required him to pit for new tires, putting Juan Pablo Montoya into the lead. Juan Pablo Montoya made it onto his second stint. And then around the same relative point in his second stint as Elio Castroneves is on, was on his first stint, also experienced a cut on his, the inner shoulder of his right tire, requiring him to take an unscheduled pit, an unexpected pit stop as well. What was interesting was that while both of them seemed to have these suspicious cuts that caused them to deflate, um, one, the tires didn't explode, and amazingly enough at 200 miles an hour with the the g-forces that they were pulling both of them managed to keep the cars out of the wall but at no point did we hear drivers stand up and go these tires are dangerous we need to change the tires this must not be allowed to happen all stop (laughs) um yeah a lot of the whining is not in indycar that we hear even uh Somebody went, I think it was to one of the Ganassi teams. Uh, yeah, it was either the Ganassi or the Penske team strategist uh, about halfway through, and they asked him about the, the cuts and, and everything, even though they were a competitor's team that, that uh, uh, had suffered the problem. And he said, well, you know, we are looking into it. We're, we're a little concerned, but we have the utmost confidence in the product that, the fire, that Firestone puts on these cars. Very different from what... Formula One teams have to say about Pirelli. Exactly. Now, I will say that we are, of course, going to watch our former for- Formula One drivers and hopefully future besties 
<laughs> um, Max Chilton is actually doing really well. He finished in seventh in this race, and he's tenth overall in the season so far. And uh, he finished better than any other rookie mm-hmm. on the track because he is technically a rookie. Correct. Now, he competed in the Indy Lights Series last year and apparently won... He won in Iowa. Iowa, which is also an oval. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot of talk about him actually being good on an oval. Um, I'll mention also Alexander Rossi, Mm -hmm. who started in 14th, ended in 14th. The other thing that really struck... Well, there are two things. First, Indy's rolling starts. I thought it really was kind of dull and boring in St. Petersburg. It was a little better mm-hmm. in Phoenix. i still not sure I like the rolling starts. The other thing is there were a lot of cautions. A lot of cautions. Now, because of how camera angles work and stuff like that, we couldn't see if there was a lot of debris and damage on a track. And I understand that you know, the thought of carbon fiber slashing up these tires is with the speeds that these cars are going and, and the, the G-forces, there's some concern there. But it did seem like that for the slightest contact with the wall whatsoever brought out a caution and brought out the pace car. Yes. In fact, the entire race ended under a caution. Yes. Um, there were a lot of them. There was a little bit of contact. Six. There a little bit of contact, a little bit of um, craziness going on. But the one thing I have to say, going into this, and I've always made the joke that, you know, the reason we like Formula One is they make left and right turns, Mm -hmm. and they go up grades. And so the concept of an oval kind of made me go, ugh, I don't want to watch an oval. It looks like it's just boring, and people whipping around in a circle all day. I mean, doesn't that sound pretty dull? (laughs) It for was, 200 laps. For 200 laps. Uh, also, add to that in the doll. I'm going to watch somebody drive around in a circle for 200 laps. Mind you, it was only an hour and 49 minutes. Yeah. So that's how fast those laps are. However, the thing that got me was the passing is really rather cool. Yeah. And it was a little butt-clenching passing. But And, and that's the other key difference you, you saw there. You know, Formula One is going through this crackdown with radio calls, and they don't want uh, the pit walls giving assistance to the drivers. The drivers are supposed to be be running the race completely unaided. Correct. IndyCar, on the other hand, especially on on these ovals, they've got multiple spotters who are calling out instructions and directions to the drivers, letting them know when drivers are coming up alongside them, where they are, when the other drivers are clear, all of it. And it happens so much that there is absolutely no effort made by the broadcast teams to not step on the radio calls. All right. Now, the radio calls are also a little less interesting, but you do hear them talk about go up, 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 down, down, down. Yeah, and inside. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, and the, the drivers will freely admit they can't see some of the people around them. That's why they need the spotters to help them make the passes but it allows them to make some really cool passes because they're tight yeah i mean that's the key is when you've got somebody that can see the whole picture they can talk you through that a whole lot better because you don't have to look so the last thing i have and it's something that caught me completely unawares the coverage brought by 
NBC Sports was actually pretty good. I mean, it was not Sky Sports F1 quality, but it was pretty good. It was definitely a whole lot deeper than anything that they provide for Formula One. There was none of the, well, the, you know, Formula, NBC Sports' Formula One coverage is dominated by uh, bouncing basically from one sponsored uh, spot to another sponsored spot to another sponsored spot. There was none of that. No. We actually got some color pieces. We got some insight into strategies and why folks were doing what they were doing. There was no mother's tire facts of the race. None of that crap. No. Now, they had um, they had multiple people on the grid. They had multiple people mm-hmm. at the race, um, which we never see with, you know, Will Buxton. Poor little Will Buxton. Um, but we don't see that in any of the Formula One races. Now, they do have the cameras on the cars are sponsored. Yes. And so there is some sponsorships and things like that, like Mother's Tire Facts It's not the nearly race. as blatant. But it's, you know, this camera on this car is sponsored by this. And I didn't mind that nearly so much as, well, these are the only segments that we can do and we can, we can have because... We have a sponsor that says that we need to, and that's the problem with with the Formula One coverage. It's also a lot longer than the Formula One pre race and post race coverage. No, there's a, there's definitely a lot more to it. Mm-hmm. They're covering all the different parts, and there there's a lot to it. That's a robust coverage, and they're getting into much like the Sky Sports and the Channel Four and what BBC used to do. They're getting into the teams and talking to them. They're talking to the principals. They're talking to the owners. They're talking to the drivers. They they did a really good piece on James Hinchcliffe's accident last year at Indy at uh, Indianapolis and his return to the track this year. Cause that it was, was his first piece. race that he was back on in the track. Um, no, he was in, uh, I thought, in I Pete. thought they said it was, uh, no, he I'll ran in St. Pete. I'm, I'm pretty sure he was in St. Pete. I can double check. Okay. You double check. Now, while I'm looking, he finished 11th in St. Pete. <laughs> um, while I'm looking, the person that is leading the series right now is Simon Pagenaud. Mm-hmm. You're very impressed I said his name, right? I am. <laughs> we had to work you through it a couple of weeks ago. Oh, well, you know, names are hard. He has not won a race yet. Okay. We are only two races in, so, well, you know. Well, yes, but I'm pointing this out because he's he's one of those drivers that's very known for consistency, and that's uh, why he leads these types of things. Um, he's done very well. He's always up in the top bit, but consistency matters. Um, And there's a lot of points per race. I mean, we're talking people have, the leader has 83 points and nobody has zero. And the person that has the fewest points is Ed Carpenter, who owns his own team, by the way. But he didn't race previously, so he's nine points. You know, you, you get points for doing just about anything. You know, if you make it through the race and and only take three sips out of your drink bottle, I think that's at least a point there. No, <laughs> you do get a point uh, if you have if you lead laps, in addition to your placement on the grid. See, um, and then there's yeah, it, it's there's a there's a lot of things system. you can get points for, so it's a, it's a bit different. Now, if you're really excited. The next race is in eight days, two hours, 59 minutes, and 54 seconds. And that would be in Long Beach. Yes. 
former home of an F1 race. And I believe that's a road race, not an oval. It is. Now, speaking of former homes of F1 races, we got word this week that Imola Chief Salvatico Estense met with Bernie Eccleston in Bahrain to discuss the possibility of Imola hosting another Formula One race. Now, Imola, this past year, uh, celebrated the 35th anniversary of the first time that they ever hosted a Formula One race. They are grade one certified and have been for several years, although their last, the last time they hosted a race was in 2006. Um, Imola hosted, last hosted, and actually I think it was the only time that they actually hosted the Italian Grand Prix was in 1980. And it was the Italian Grand Prix that year because Monza was not run that year. Right. Normally it was run as the San Marino Grand Prix. And of course, Imola is known for being uh, the place where Ayrton Senna had his final race. Fatal accident. Yes. Bad weekend. Yes. But uh, all this, you know, gets a little interesting considering Monza still does not have a signed agreement, which we were expecting by the end of February. That has not happened. Now, word has come out that this wasn't an attempt to prevent Monza from hosting a race. It was more along the lines of, we can host one, Mm -hmm. and we would like to host one, but we don't know what else has happened. Well, that's kind of interesting because everybody is traditionally saying that we've hit the top number of races we can have in a season, that the teams will start revolting if we have any more than 21. And so the question becomes, what's going to fall off the grid if Imola comes back? Yeah. And will they do something, if Monza's having issues, would they do something like what they do in Germany to flip them back and forth? I think that would be his... Bernie's first attempt at a compromise would, would be an alternating type of a thing. The question is, would both of those sites be willing to do that? And I don't know. That's the big question. In other track news, hmm. we have mentioned a few times that Silverstone is potentially for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, Jaguar Land Rover had initially put in an offer. That offer still stands, but now a second group has submitted a bid for the track. Um, Genetic Cars boss Lawrence Tomlinson, who is a uh, former club director of the British Racing Drivers Club, which owns the track, um, and owner of the L&T group, has made an offer after he and a group of fellow members wrote a letter to the club last week arguing that the Jaguar Land Rover deal would leave it having to protect rather than promote British motor racing. Ooh. So I guess the suspicion the, or, or the fear there is that if Jaguar Land Rover bought the track, they would want to use it more as a test facility than as a motorsports facility. I don't know if that's true. I mean, that's a lot of money to sink into it to make it a, a testing facility. But I think that's the fear there. Interesting. Um, so other than confirming that there is an offer from the group and that uh, they need to discuss it, we have no further information. So we'll see where that goes. So here's something. I didn't think we would hear it in a very long time. You know, what was it, two weeks ago? We, we heard some, some talk from Christian Horner and Red Bull that they were saying that, that Renault is, that things are better. 
Oh no, I, actually, it was Cyril Abitbull who came out and, and said that um, they weren't getting beat up by Red Bull anymore. Right. Well, Christian Horner has actually now come out and said that the team's relationship with Renault is much improved, and the French manufacturer's return to team ownership has given them their desire and impetus back. So they've gone to counseling. They're 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 in therapy, and they're getting better as they're having a better relationship now. Well, you know, Christian says that the relationship is much improved over the winter. I think genuine progress is really being made, and the difference now is Renault have got their own team, and they've got that desire and impetus back. That's what he says. Gotta say, performance-wise, what we're seeing from Red Bull is not what we were expecting. I mean, Daniel Ricciardo has been really close to the top, and the team has been a lot more competitive than everybody expected. Now, one thing that I did hear this last week, and there was also a lot of talk about how great it was that Toro Rosso was going to get last year's Ferrari engine, and that this means that they were going to be a force to contend with, which they haven't been. But apparently, there has been analysis of the power output between the teams running the 2016 engines and this 2015 Ferrari engine. And it should probably come as no surprise, but it has the lowest power of any other engine on the grid. So they could lose to Manor. They're not that far back. Um, I mean, Manor's driving a Mercedes, so... Manor is, but they haven't had the development on the aero and stuff like that. So it's still a slower car, even though it has a better engine. However, it's possible that if... The team keeps doing the way they're doing, and money continues to move into that team by the end of the year, especially with what we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. Manor could ultimately start to be overtaking them. Right now, it's not happening. Right. But, yeah, it may come a bit further. That would be awesome. Now, just as a curiosity point, Mm -hmm. one I don't know if you even know the answer to, what do you think is going to happen with Red Bull's bid? Because they only have this Tag Heuer branded Renault engine for the year. For the year. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen next year? You know, are they courting other manufacturers? Are they? Do you think that this kiss butt comment from Horner is an attempt to make sure he doesn't slam the door on a on a new Red Bull uh, Renault Tag Heuer engine? Yes. Maybe he learned from his past mistakes. I, I think that some of it, some of it also is um, seeing how much better the engine is this year compared to last year, and how much better the performance is, combined with the fact that as it stands right now, he doesn't see the works team as a threat. He doesn't feel that they are despite the difference in the relationship between the two, he does not see a disadvantage or Red Bull's overall management, Dietrich Manischitz and uh, uh, Helmut Marko, don't see that they are being disadvantaged not being the official works team. Uh, Also good. I think as long as they feel that way and they are close to getting to the podium everybody will play nice be interesting now what do you think about caveat 
Do you think that he is, because Ricardo is definitely doing very well with the new engine and the new year, but Kvyat is struggling this year. Well, he struggled at the start of last season too. Now, granted, that a lot of that was mechanical related. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's struggling and all four drivers in that organization have, if the rumors are true, have a hatchet hanging over their head. And those that don't perform, regardless of whether they're sitting in Red Bull or Toro Rosso, are going to be out the door. So there is a distinct possibility that if Daniel can't get get to a point where he is dicing it with Daniel Ricciardo, he could be replaced by one of the, the Toro Rosso drivers. Hello, Max. That w- could be a potential, or you know, we could see what happens with a Ferrari seat, there's a possibility that a Mercedes seat might come open, but now maybe not. Yeah. You know, when you have two race wins to to start off the season, it helps your contract negotiation position quite a bit. (laughs) Especially since it's now five in a row. Yes. So, moving on. Mm -hmm. Ferrari apparently got themselves in a little bit of hot water. There was an investigation regarding a pit board message that was displayed to Sebastian Vettel. Love you, man! No, actually, what it read was minus 3.2 LFS6 P1. Okay. Which, it was spotted by a rival team and reported to Charlie Whiting prompting an investigation. Because, remember, not only the the ban that came down wasn't just on radio transmissions and the ban on coded radio transmissions, but any kind of wet method of passing coded messages to the driver, including the pit boards. Correct. So it was investigated, and under normal circumstances, that message would not be one the FIA would allow. However, um, Ferrari apparently provided the FIA with an entirely satisfactory explanation. What they said was that during the race, a number of teams had problems with fuel recalculations in the wake of the 20-minute red flag stoppage following Fernando Alonso's accident. Um, Whiting confirmed after the race, the red flag and restart raised a number of glitches that needed to be solved. For Ferrari and Vettel in particular, it led to a problem with how the standard electronics control unit software handled the stoppage, which necessitated the pit board message at the time. The FIA therefore concluded the message was permissible and will not take any action. Interesting. I'm glad Charlie bought it because it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got to say. That. I, yeah. Um, the other big issue engine-wise, team-wise, has been with Lewis and his starts. Yeah. They've been kind of on par with Mark Webber's starts. Yeah, he's not starting so hot. Um, there, there's been a lot of chatter both directions about where. Actually, Lewis has been kind of quiet other than, yeah, I got a bad start. Mm-hmm. Mercedes has come out and said that it's not entirely Lewis's fault. They have confirmed that there is some kind of a mechanical issue, in particular on Lewis's car, but both of them had the problem. But there is some kind of mechanical issue that has been causing the problem. They are now working with the folks over at Daimler on some new clutch hardware in the hopes it will resolve their start issues. Oh, I hope so. Um, now, I know 
at least one person out there happened to have watched the Channel 4 coverage besides us. Phil finally tracked it down, and we've been telling you this for years, man. Night and day. Night and day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, one of the things that was noticed, at least in the Channel 4 coverage, was Nico, when he pulled up to the grid at the end of the formation lap, plopped the car in a second. Okay. That what's not clear is exactly why, how, what the deal was with that. Um, actually, it was going into the formation lap as, as he pulled it and dropped it in the second. Um, Total Wolf has come out and said that it was driver selected. So it wasn't a software or computer glitch that popped the car in a second. It was something that Nico had done, probably inadvertently. Hmm. Um, but that is another issue that they're looking at as to why that happened. Very interesting. But the starts are getting everybody. I mean, a few people are making outstanding starts. But outstanding is in comparison to um, how bad some of the other starts are. Yeah, um, and and that kind of led to the mix-up and issues that happened in the race. Um, Obviously, Nico was able to recover from it. But Lewis, it caused him some other issues. Well, it caused him some other issues because he wound up back a little bit and then susceptible to a first-turn accident. There's been a lot of debate over that accident. Now, Valtteri has come forward and he has said that he did break late going into that turn. But watching the video, and what a lot of people have said was that the Mercedes cars... In their battle, both approached the turn slower than normal. Combine that with the fact that Lewis essentially led the door open. He was in the far left of the track and then cut over to the right, giving the indication that there was an opening. And this wasn't necessarily a Maldonado-level dive bombing of the corner by Valtteri. It, there was what appeared to be an opening. Mm-hmm. And... He was taking it, or at least breaking late to get into it, and ended up T-boning Lewis in the process. The thing is, with Valtteri breaking as late as he did, I'm not sure he could have held that corner. Even if he got into it cleanly without hitting Lewis, I'm not sure he could have made it without drifting over anyway and hitting somebody next to him. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of factors into that whole accident to say that it was any one thing. It was a late break. It was a dive bomb. But Lewis has done that dive bomb <laughs> a, a many a time. And they are allowed to make that one direction change. And that's what he did. Yeah. Now, the start of the race, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of cars. Go- there, there's not a lot of room for multiple direction changes anyway going into it. But one of the other things that people said was... For Lewis to have been so far over and then come across, it was kind of dumb for him not to think that somebody was going to try and stick their nose in there if they were close enough. Yeah. And he didn't leave any room. So, yeah, there's been some question as to whether or not possibly Lewis invited it, whether or not the penalty given to Valtteri was really justified or not. Um, Valtteri really hasn't spoken out too hard against it. So we'll see what happens. And I got to say, Lewis has not said a whole lot of, you know, he hit me, man, he hit me, anything like that either. I mean, it's been kind of, you know, professional. But I was very impressed. I mean, he he dropped back. He 
suffered damage. He fought that entire race. Third was outstanding mm-hmm. for all that he went through and the damage to the car. Toto did an, an interesting uh, interview talking about, well, this was the best result we could hope for. And the commentators are like, what do you mean the best? You could have gotten a one-two. And he goes, not with that kind of damage. Yeah. You know, um, David Cothart actually described that opening really, really well. This is what he had to say. Now, I know there's been a lot of rule changes recently. Have they given points for contact? Because <laughs> there was an awful lot. Um, they were. It was like touring car. It, it was kind of close. You know, he had also said that in many ways this was like the first day. There was mm-hmm. a lot of mistakes happening that you'd expect in the first race and not necessarily the second race. It's like they sort of forgot. They they were, you know, all professional the first time around, and now they settled into it and kind of got a little lazy. Yeah. Um, but while we're talking about Mercedes, okay. there was a really good feature over on James Allen James Allen's website, although this wasn't written by James. It was He's got a couple of staffers who also help put stories on there about how – Uh, Mercedes supplies its engines to customers and what customers get and how that whole process works. It's a really good read. Um, Basically what comes out, according to Mercedes, is that the engines that are supplied and all the parameters and everything else, everybody gets the same thing with few exceptions. Okay. But essentially the engine that goes to the works team is the same engine that goes to Williams, it's the same engine that goes to Force India and it's the same engine that goes to Manor. The and it's the same thing with the control software as well. However, where there can be a difference and this is what happened last year and what happened in in uh Monza and, and Singapore is that Sometimes, because of production issues and things like that, there are not necessarily enough spares and enough parts and enough components to go around to supply all the teams. And in that case, the works team gets priority. And that's why when the improvements first came out at the the last half of last season, the works team got them and the other teams didn't. Oh. Um. But one of the other things that they supply is they supply some very specific um, specifications and how the engine can be run and how many times you can run the components. They call this a, a phase document. Okay. Um, and they're very, very big on following those parameters and the requirements in those phase documents. And the person that was responding on behalf of Mercedes to James Allen's group says, when you don't, what we have learned is that when you do not follow the phase document, we have problems and we have really big ones. And the big example that he pulled out was again in Monza when they blew up Nico's engine. Mm. They knew they had exceeded the requirements that, or, or the parameters in there, but they didn't have a choice. Ran the engine anyway and blew up the engine. But that's ah. the whole point of the phase document and how it works. However, all of those upgrades for each of the various phases throughout the year, all the teams get them at once, provided the components are ready to go. So, I mean, 
if they were mean and nasty people, they could really sabotage their part. I mean, this wouldn't be long-term beneficial if you think about it, but they could really sabotage somebody. Think about it. If Williams was ahead of them in the constructor series, they could have a production issue that would prevent Williams from having the next piece. It could. There may be some contract pieces that prevent it. Yeah, I mean, that's a distinct possibility. When you are a customer relying on a manufacturer who has their own works team and you're competing against them, that's always a possibility that it could happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know how likely it is. Um, the other thing is uh, there are, just like we, we've seen with Renault and Red Bull, there are engineers from Mercedes that are embedded in each of these teams. The, the benefit mercedes sees and all the supplier the engine suppliers see is again the more copies of that engine that are running the more information that they get um they do issue the the teams some general parameters that are needed to mount the engines on their chassis so there is a minimal amount of um influence that they have on the design of the chassis it's mainly around the engine points Mm -hmm. however when it comes to exhaust designs and how all of that works what mercedes does is they supply the necessary adapters to plug the engine's exhaust into whatever it is that the teams have designed interesting so they don't influence the design of the exhaust and and how all of those pieces work they will adapt that exhaust to work with their system. Okay. So, yeah, really interesting. It's over on uh, James Allen's website. Very cool. It's neat to to learn sort of how they all work together. You know, in a way, it's an extension to your team. It is. And they do have to work together. And I realized that I did propose what is probably, like, the worst sportsman like behavior ever sportsman and, beha- and business behavior and business behavior because the minute williams you know in my scenario if williams got the hint that they were withholding a production part from them because they were doing well in the series then they're going to be less likely to want to buy a mercedes engine the next time around and you know we've heard those comments before from teams that software revisions aren't the same always between the customers and sometimes components aren't there. Mercedes is saying here, no, that's not the case. And Renault has turned around and said the same thing for, for what's being supplied to the Red Bull Tag Heuer combination is what goes to the works team is what's going to, to the Red Bull group as well. Mm-hmm. That's what they're saying. So we'll see. Cool. We've got some disturbing news coming out of South. What has Monisha done now? Sold more seats to fewer drivers? No. Um, before in, in the run-up to Melbourne, we had gotten word that uh, salary... Actually, it was the end of February. We had gotten word that salaries were late to members of the team. Mm. And they had missed that. Uh, they ended up clearing everything up before Melbourne, but there were a delay in the salaries. Apparently, they have once again missed payday. Uh-oh. Um it was late they did actually end up catching up with that the money came from marcus erickson's backers 
they uh, advanced some of their payments to ensure that the team could make payroll. Uh, word is that Monisha is also talking with Felipe uh, Nasser's Banco de Brazil backers as well for an advance to help them get through this. Mm. But uh, it sounds like Monisha was not in Bahrain. The belief is that she was negotiating, getting additional funds from somebody. And there is talk that she may not, or at least that she is not expected to be in China as well. Wow. Yeah. Now, James Allen, this this is where, as much as James Allen is very well connected and can be spot on with it, I mean, he knows F1 almost as well as anybody out there. But when it comes to stuff like this, he can miss the mark. You know, last year there was uh, talk, he, he had gotten some information on sources regarding what uh, Renault was going to do and, and what uh, Lotus was going to do, and, and, and that didn't pan out. So you got to take that. That's why I'm prefacing what I'm, this latest rumor coming from James. James says that his sources uh, say that Sauber is looking at two options right now. One is that there is some talks going on between uh, Sauber management and Sergio Marchionne, who runs the Fiat Chrysler Ferrari Alfa Romeo group, of selling the team to Marchionne for it to be reconstituted as the Alfa Romeo F1 team. Okay. Um, the other thing that he has said is that they're also exploring the possibility of completely pulling out and shutting down the racing operation altogether and instead becoming a racing and performance design consultancy similar to what ProDrive has because they've got all the facilities there. So right. this would be a way to still be involved in performance and monetize what they have. So. Um. That's actually really sad. As, as much as we've made fun of Sauber and some of their business dealings, I'm, I'm very sad. I'm sad to see any team struggle like this, especially teams that are new that need to start making their way. So I'm sad. Gee, thanks for the downer. Sorry. Hey, I got some more information on uh, Sebastian Vettel's engine failure that prevented him from starting. Oh, did they forget the motor oil? No, it, it was not that. Um, initial suspicion had revolved around broken fuel injection, or, or excuse me, broken fuel injectors. However, I guess after some analysis back at the factory, they've got a completely different reason for what happened. Uh, what failed was an exhaust valve. However, Ferrari believes that this was the end result of, a, of the problem, not the cause. Hmm. What they're saying was that there was a problem with the engine parameters linked to electronics management while the engine was running at low speed, and that triggered a set of circumstances that pushed the valve beyond its normal operating parameters and caused the failure. So Ferrari believes that it was an electronics issue that was to blame, uh, and it would explain why technicians had not discovered any problems with the power unit before the race. Interesting. And that's different than what caused the fire over Kimmy's head. Yeah, that was a whole different thing. Mm. So, 
one of the the changes that came out this year that yeah it was kind of snuck in and it appears to be functioning in, in a very much this snuck in manner was this whole driver of the day award yeah which by the way i have not my understanding is how driver of the day was supposed to work was that fans were supposed to be able to vote on the driver of the day and sometime around the podium ceremony we were supposed to find out who that winner was that's not happening that way i haven't seen anything that gives me any indication as to how i could possibly vote for driver of the day and every time that i've heard who the driver of the day was it was like three days after the race was over That's because they're counting paper ballots. It must be. However, there has been a clean sweep so far with Driver of the Day, with Roman Grosjean winning it now twice. Hey, congratulations to our Haas driver, Roman Grosjean. I I don't begrudge him for it. I mean, let's face it. After Australia, everybody kind of wrote off that sixth-place uh, as a you know th- this lucky thing that they happened to be in yeah it was a fluke that they were in the right place at the right time and who would have thought that they could pull that off only for him to roll into Bahrain and even with a botched pit stop he ends up in fifth I know now I mean Haas has got to be sitting back and going whoa you know we were just hoping to finish and now we're in the points People are going to start watching us. We better start getting our, our act together. Well, they've said now that it is their goal to earn points at every race. Uh, Gene Haas says that, you know, it, it it's not realistic to expect that we're going to be firmly in the mid-pack every race. We are not expecting fourths, fifths, and sixths every single race. But given that we have been so far up into the points, both races so far this season— our goal is to score points now at every race. So even if it's just one or two points, that is our goal. Yeah. And you know something? I have to say, the interviews with Roman have been just joy personified. He is so happy in all of the interviews. It's just been so much fun to watch him. Um, you do get that sense that he doesn't even need the podium to feel like a winner. I know a lot of people probably really were down on his decision to leave Lotus, which was a firm mid-pack team, even with their money issues, to go to the startup. I mean, mm-hmm. in a way, it could have easily have gone that he'd picked, you know, going from Williams to HRT. I mean, it could have been yeah. like that. And for him to prove that wrong and say, no, I we've got something here, has been just awesome and um the other thing i've noticed about him is in his interviews and this is going to sound like the craziest thing in the world but in his interviews his french accent has come out even stronger in this year than ever before i mean i've always heard it i think he's always had a really thick accent and he can be very hard to understand but it's been harder this year so i don't know if he's you know I just don't know what that's about, but I've just noticed that in his interviews, maybe it's just he's being interviewed more and longer, but you just hear it more. Now, one thing I was not expecting at all this weekend, I mean, I guess I kind of should have. We talked last week about Bernie and his comments towards the drivers, and and we, we should share one of those comments. Just to remind you as to what Bernie has done 
or what he is, the flames that he is fanning. I was very happy to see they could write, actually, and spell. So I was delighted. Yeah, that was Bernie's comments in response to the GPDA letter uh, urging changes in how Formula One is managed. Correct. Um, apparently, also before the race, and, and we didn't know this until later on, um, and there's some question as to the legitimacy of the story because it comes from German newspaper Bild, which is about as tabloidy as possible. So you you got to take the source with a little bit of a grain of salt. But according to Bild, and they say that Lewis has confirmed this, uh, Bernie went to Mercedes and a little upset because Lewis has been filming video via Snapchat in the paddock. Mm-hmm. And he told them that um, absolutely not. That is not allowed. Only the FIA gets to shoot video in the paddock, and he needs to knock it off. Now, it is a little bit believable since we know that Roman Grosjean himself got in trouble at, uh, what was it, the second test for doing the exact same thing. Correct. So that part is completely believable. However, and, and Lewis has said that, yeah, the team said it shouldn't be doing it, and he then promptly went walking out into the pit lane and, shot another snapchat video so <laughs> and we'll that also that sounds goes. very much like something lewis would do yeah so yeah it's a fairly believable story i mean it could be untrue but it's fairly believable but then bernie went on towards the end of the weekend and lashed out yet more at the drivers and this is what i thought was really staggering um he came out and he said that the drivers shouldn't even be allowed to talk and are only interested in making money from Formula One. He says, what sort of interest do they have, the drivers, other than taking money out of the sport? I've never seen them put $1 in. You go to dinner with them, and they don't even pay the bill. They shouldn't even be allowed to, do- be allowed to talk. They should get in the car and drive it. So many words crashing in my head to say next um first mm-hmm. they shouldn't have to put money into f1 they are your that, that that's staff they they do the work for you they put their life on the line they kind of bleed for you but the other piece that you are very much forgetting is that they are your ambassadors yeah And some of those drivers have done more for F1 than Bernie has. And I'm looking at you, Sir Jackie Stewart. (laughs) I'm looking at you, Nikki Lauda. I mean, those guys have done... Even Lewis and, and to some extent, Fernando. Yeah, Lewis, Fernando. I mean, the big names. But, okay, you want to go back a little bit? Look at Sir Sterling Moss. Mm -hmm. Look at even, you know, though he has passed away, James Hunt. Who left the car and went to the comedy, uh, the commentating box? He gave back to F one. Or Michael Schumacher, who was known by anybody who knew anything about cars whatsoever, even if they didn't actually follow or have an interest in Formula One whatsoever. You know, you funny you should say that. I um, we were talking at my office the other day. There's a gentleman in my office that's a European football fan. Mm-hmm. And um, he grew up in Belize, and so his view of sport is kind of very different. And he and I were just chatting, and he said something about, like, an actual American football something or other. And I looked at him and like, ah, 
it's all sport ball. And he looks at me and goes, wait a minute, but you follow something, don't you? And I said, yeah, I follow Formula One. Motorsport's my jam. And um, he says, okay, so I don't know much about Formula One. What's some names of some people that I might have heard of? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, most people know who Michael Schumacher is. And he looks at me and goes, never heard of it. But would Mario Andretti be somebody that I would know? Well, there's another and one. I said, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it's amazing, you know, I was shocked that he had never heard of Michael Schumacher. Yeah. But I'm like, well, did you see the movie Rush? The, the, that's what this is about. He goes, well, I think I want to go see that movie now. And I'm like, those are the those are the things that you need to know. But it was just kind of stunning. I'm sitting there going, even before I was an F1 fan, I knew who Schumacher was. But those are your ambassadors. They're the ones you want to talk up to. I would rather, you know, spend my evening talking to Max about his one year in Formula One than to, you know, spend a week talking to Bernie about, oh, anything. <laughs> so, McLaren is hopeful, and they have come out and they said that they expect that Fernando will be uh, returning to the car for Shanghai. I've heard this. Now, granted, again, let, let's recall, this would be after he was ruled out, from, excluded from driving for medical reasons. They fly in Stoffel Van Dorn overnight, put him in the car for two days, and then Ron Dennis comes out and goes, no, no, but we really want Fernando to drive. But to know, which if you're Stoffel Van Dorn, you're going, thanks, jerk. <laughs> but you know something? Stoffel? He got Mer- uh, McLaren's only point so far this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only did he get their, the team's only point, but came out of the car to the press raving about his performance. I mean, it was, it was, he had an outstanding drive, especially when you figure that he had one arm tied behind his back from the fact that he hadn't been in the car before. Mm-hmm. It was his debut in F1. And, I mean, he sat down and just drove the tires off that thing. And he did. He got a point. Button didn't finish, so it's the one and only point for McLaren. Go, McLaren. You're in the points now. Um, but he's good. Yeah. He's there's, there's definitely good. promise there. And Unfortunately, it means in order for him to get a seat there, Jensen's got to go. Because Jensen doesn't have a contract. But that's a seat at McLaren. Now, that's the question. Of, is anybody else looking around and sniffing around after him? Because he's good. You know, the only possibilities that I could see would be Force India or Williams. The Red Bull seats, I, I can't see Red Bull bringing an outsider into their driver program. Right. They're, they're just not interested in doing it. Ferrari's got two or three potential candidates, and odds are the Mercedes seats are not, not opening up. Well, I see that. I think I have the sneaking feeling this is Kimmy's last year, so we got to figure yeah. that that Kimmy's seat is going to be up for grabs, but who gets it? You're right about Red Bull. Their young driver program, that's a prescribed method through. Um, Moss has got to be starting to think about retiring, too. Well, both the Williams seats are open this year. However, the the thing with Kimmy's seat, what a lot of people have been saying, is that 
if Grosjean keeps performing the way he is performing, mm. that gives him an in into that seat. Remember, this is essentially the Ferrari Junior team at this point. Right. And somebody had even commented that Roman's been working to learn Italian. <laughs> and, and definitely the folks at Ferrari are watching what's going on at Haas, and they're watching the performance of those drivers. You know, Esteban Gutierrez got that seat because he is in the Ferrari program. He was the, a test and development driver for him. He's come up through their Young Driver Academy. So... Yeah, he's got an in, a, a line toward that seat as well, just like. But he's Grosjean not performing team. like Grosjean is right now. And and we had talked last year is one of the reasons the potential reasons why Roman had made the move to Haas was knowing the fact that Kimi was going was probably going to be retiring this year, and it's a way to get an inside line on that Ferrari seat. It would be an interesting one. So. All kinds of off-track stuff. We're going to build to the big issue. Okay. Okay. Start with the little stuff. Well, this is, well, the biggest of the big issues. Jean Todd has come out, and he has said that while he does not want to be a dictator and dictate terms to the sport and, and be that benevolent dictator to control the sport, he does believe now that the FIA should have complete control of Formula One's governance. Okay. And it makes sense. Okay. And it's legitimate and it's a viable thing. Um, we'll, we'll loop back to this bit, uh, or, or to this point in a little bit. But what he says is that the FIA should have complete control as the regulator and the legislature of Formula One, but historically it has not been like that. It is what I have inherited. It is like that. Um, now, when it was suggested to Jean Todd that F1 was in need of a dictator to again take control, he said, I'm sorry, but I'm not a dictator. If I was a dictator, I would have imposed Q1 and Q2 as it is now with the time change and Q3 revert to 2015. But I've been entrusted by 250 FIA members to be the president, so I cannot allow the FIA to be sued and we would lose. Normally when dictators do that, and we have examples on much more important matters than in sport, they always fail. The time of dictators is past. We have governance. I respect the governance, and as long as I am entrusted to be the president of the FIA, then I will follow the governance. However, he also recognized the governance is not good, but the governance has been there for decades. We will wait until the renewal of the Concord Agreement by 2020 and decide to change the governance. Okay. Now, the problem here, and I don't know all of the full details, is that my understanding is that the stake that the FIA owned and used as their controlling stake or, or their stake to impact the direction of Formula One, they were forced to sell. And they were forced to sell by EU regulators out of concerns over anti-competitive and, and uh, antitrust restrictions. Right. I don't know the full details about it, but it was my understanding that it was the EU that forced that change. And some of the governance that we have today it was forced by the change in the mm -hmm. EU. What by the EU? However, we also know that Sauber and Force India, and I believe 
one other team had filed a complaint with the EU back before before the new year right regarding the governance structure and how the payouts were and we didn't really hear a whole lot no. Bernie said maybe they would go and take a look Bernie has since come out and he has said um, that yes the EU has reached out to him they are investigating and he is speaking to them about the governance structure oh goodness gracious well you know last year I would have assumed that Bernie's response would have been, we, we've got this. This is what we've got in place. Go away. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. I don't either. Now, after the whole thing with qualifying and how that has gone down and some other decisions that are about to come forward, I have a feeling that actually Bernie may be coming out and pushing for the EU to step in and destroy the, agree- the current governance agreement so that he can get it restructured so that either him, well, probably some combination of him and the FIA get back control of the sport. Also does not surprise me in the least because he's been complaining that the teams are running the sport and that that's not, that's not fair and I want to pick up my toys and go home. And that brings us to the qualifying situation. More changes than a middle school dating relationship. So what we knew when we recorded last week <laughs> was that the qualifying, round two of the qualifying was an unmitigated disaster. Right. It didn't get better with age. The teams again met, this time with Bernie and with Jean Todd, and as, well, we should have seen coming, based on the comments that Bernie had made, um, and I'll replay basically Bernie's position on the qualifying. Of all the things that didn't need changing, was the qualifying. Has been good for a long time. Fantastic. A lot of this was a problem with the teams, not the qualifying. Um, And maybe we shouldn't dump it now. What, the new one? Yeah, the, when we the knockout system. Have, have a look at it and see how it works. Try another. It's a prototype. We will try so and see. We will be running. The, the teams should learn how it works. So if we stay the same format yeah. as us, I think we should. As Australia, yeah, you will be should. talking to the teams yeah. that it's compulsory for them to continue. We have to get FIA us and the teams to agree to change it, so it won't happen. So based on that, we should have thoroughly expected that coming out of the meeting on Sunday that they weren't going to change it. Right. Even though we hoped otherwise. And, and that is what happened. However, somebody put forth a proposal. I think it came from Jean Todd and the FIA to change the qualifying into a, um aggregate qualifying system. You mean like IndyCar? Not just like IndyCar, but actually – Kind of like what Formula One did before. Really? Formula One tried out an aggregate qualifying system. Uh, They did this back in 2004. Um, Originally, before that, there was a one-hour, 12-lap system that you had in order to to set a qualifying time. But they were going through that at least 30 minutes uh, of that period. There was nobody out on track. Ah, so they came up with this idea of an aggregate qualifying system. 
Now, at the time, refueling was still in place. Okay. The way this system worked is it was, again, two laps, aggregate between the time. That would do your position, but it was held over two sessions. Oh. Session number one was on your Saturday, and I believe that one was a, yeah, that was a low fuel run on Saturday, so your fast time. Sunday before the race was a second qualifying session where the fuel that was that was where the team could decide how much fuel they wanted to to run but it also had an impact on how much fuel they could run at the start of the race so there was some strategy there to make a decision the problem was the first time they ran this qualifying they had everybody ran the, the first qualifying session they set times and all of that stuff q2 comes around the next day and it rains (laughs) <laughs> which negates any impact that that could possibly have on it. Right. Um, the other problem that they ran into was the broadcasters weren't ready for it. Nobody was watching the Sunday qualifying. Nobody understood it. That entire qualifying, it lasted all of five races. Oh. Six races. Okay. Six races before they went to something similar to what we have had up until this year. Okay. Um, Now, the difference between the qualifying is that it was all going to be on a Saturday session. So it wasn't going to be split over the two days. But the drivers still hated it. They do not like this idea. Um, Now, granted, Jensen came out and said that driving around with one eye open would be better than the, the format that we have seen the last two races. Hey, that's an option, Jensen. I think it's on the table. <laughs> it, you know, it, it quite possibly could be. Um, Sebastian Vettel has been very outspoken on the qualifying in either format. He did not like the uh, this aggregate system. And, well, we in order to keep our, our clean rating, I, I won't say what he had to say. Okay. So, But you can use your imagination as to how he put it. Um. But amazingly, what happened, and this is something that I don't think we would have expected to come out of this. After the meeting had happened and, and we heard that aggregate was coming, there was supposed to be this a, a meeting this past Thursday to vote on staying with the same stupid qualifying or moving to this new aggregate system. However, this happened, in the words of Christian Horner. Think bigger than your own team for a moment. Think about what's right for Formula One. And the teams did just that. The teams got together in advance of the Thursday meeting and put together a letter that they sent to FOM and FIA signed by all of the teams, every single one of them, demanding a return to the old qualifying. Now, what we don't know is what the or else part of that demand was, (laughs) but it was a um, universal endorsement of reverting the qualifying and not trying this again, not trying any of the other solutions to go around it, but to revert back to this solution. Now, what they apparently did agree to is to look at redesigning and rethinking qualifying for 2017 and they were open to suggestions throughout the current season 
to examine proposals for changes to 2017, including potentially some tests for a 2017 qualifying. But they did universally demand to go back, and as a result, Jean Todd and Bernie have agreed to revert back. Now, I do not want to say that this is a done deal. No, because it still has to go through World Motorsport and the F1 Commission, right? Correct. The other way around, but correct. Um, The FIA has released a statement saying that they have agreed with the teams and ultimately the drivers and the fans to put forth a proposal to revert back to 2015 qualifying with immediate effect, which would mean for China. Mm -hmm. However, they have said that they are putting forth that proposal to the F1 Commission and to World Motorsport. In theory, we could see this happen. However, I will point out that there is one party we have yet to hear from. One party who can sink the whole thing. Are we talking Pirelli or Ferrari? Pirelli. I'm not concerned. Well, because this was a universal letter from all the teams, I'm not concerned about Ferrari and their veto. Okay. But Pirelli, however, has been silent. I don't think Pirelli is digging this because you know what? Everybody's talking about the reason. one of the reasons this isn't working is they don't have enough tires. So the only thing Pirelli could do is go back and say, okay, well, we're going to give you guys more tires. You'd have to approve more tire options or more tires for every race. But Pirelli hand makes those tires. That would be a huge expense. Well, that's one of the other things. Um, We know this is going to the World Motorsport Council. I've already heard rumbling that the one-hour sprint race is being tossed around as another potential proposal for 2017. But again, you've got to wonder, if that's the direction that they want to go, how much lead time does Pirelli need to make sure that there are enough tires to go around? Because in order for that to work, they need to rethink what they're doing for tires. Because right now, teams are burning through tires for qualifying, you know, one to two laps, and then they're done with those tires. A sprint race is probably going to be somewhere between 20 to 30 laps. But even more than that, it's a full teams stint. that are currently starting races without any unused softest compound tires Yep. because of the qualifying. Mm-hmm. If you want the action on the track during the race, give them tires. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a sprint race, while interesting, how do you qualify? What's the start order on a sprint race? Hmm? Well, what has been, what I have heard was the original proposal was the initial grid positions for that sprint qualifying race would be based on final positions um, coming out of P3, Mm. thereby making P3 more important. Okay. Interesting. I don't know. There's also, as we spoke a couple of months ago, or a couple of weeks ago, there's the broadcasters to deal with. Right. Because this changes their, those who who rely on commercial sponsorship, this changes their model as to how they would do the broadcasting for qualifying and how they would set those commercial breaks up and work that out. Because even those that don't do commercials while the cars are actually on the track during the qualifying sessions use between the qualifying sessions for to pack their commercials in. Mm -hmm. So they would be basically having to do commercials right before the sprint race and right after the sprint race. 
And that could mean larger blocks of commercials. So on Friday, Bernie was speaking to the press again. Bernie came out and he, 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 he's frustrated. He, he is reminding everybody as to why we went through this. Why did we go through this, Bernie? He has come out and he has said that people have forgotten why we changed qualifying. You mean that thing that even he admitted to Eddie Jordan? Was pretty crap. Was working perfectly? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and went to something that was pretty crap. Well, what Bernie has said is that he was doing this for you. And you ungrateful jerks. He was looking out for you. He was trying to make things better because, remember, F1 is the worst that it ever was, and it peop- he wouldn't buy tickets. And you ungrateful jerks didn't like what he, what he did and what he put forth. And, and, yeah. Do you know what he could do for me? It's finally dawned on me exactly what Bernie could do for me. Write you a check? Well, okay, oh. <laughs> that, that would be nice. Um, I wouldn't turn that down, but... No, I've decided that he needs to show up to a race wearing a ball gag. That would make me happy. Except he wasn't at a race where he made these comments. Wherever he is, he should be forced to wear a ball gag constantly now. So what he, his his actual words. Oh. Instead of my translation of what, what he had to say that, you know. He said, people seem to forget what we are trying to do which is muddle the grid up a little bit, because what we have seen doesn't make for much excitement. Lewis Hamilton has helped us a bit this season by not making good starts and having to come through the field, and Ferrari finally seems to have gotten his act together, so maybe things will change. Unless we can get everybody on board with regard to a new format, then we are not going to find an answer. It's as simple as that. He's doing this for you people, you ungrateful people. I get the idea of a desire to muddle up the grid. I really get that. But look at the arrow that doesn't allow people to pass. Start Mm -hmm. there. Well, another website posited that what is going on and and why this is the direction that, that Bernie and the FIA are going is because they're smart. It's it's a theory here that they are smart enough to recognize that the technical regulations are as they stand right now are not conducive to improving action on the track. Mm-hmm. And they also cannot get the momentum, they cannot get the push, they cannot get the support to make what they view are the changes to improve that. So instead of attacking the technical regulations and getting change there, they're instead looking at the sporting regulations. Oh, I understand that. That doesn't, that is not even a question in my theory. But they're still, they're still going backwards about the whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, qualifying apparently is starting to feel like middle school dating relationships. On again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again. We've got it. We don't have it. We don't have it. We do What? Make a decision already. Well, we will see what happens next week. Like I said, I am not 100% convinced that that's the direction we're going. Just that somebody is leaning in that direction. 
We know an actual proposal for the first time this year to revert to 2015 qualifying has made it out of the strategy group and is headed to the F1 Commission and the World Motorsport Council. Hey. So at least there is that. Progress is happening. So we will cross our fingers. And as we know more and as we hear what the decision is, the official decision, I will make sure we get something dropped into the Facebook feed as soon as we get that word. Mm -hmm. And you know we will be talking about it next week. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I keep wondering if, you know, when we were making our predictions as to what the big story was, did it ever cross our minds that qualifying was going to be it? Yeah. But uh, just a reminder, you know, we want to hear from you, your opinions on the subject. Is this about control or is this about something else? And we didn't even really talk about that too much this week. Um, But there is the possibility that Jean Todd and Bernie may need to actually step up and take control, probably not on this fight. And this was the wrong fight to get involved in the beginning. Oh, yeah. However, we still don't have a decision on the 2017 rules. And that decision has got to be made soon. That, in all honesty... Is That's where I think where Bernie and Jean Todd need to step in. That's where they need to be pushing, and they need to be pushing for something that will actually have an impact. Yeah. I think you're right there. But anyway, remember, you can leave us a comment over on the Facebook page or over at uh, blokeinthebird.com. Leave us a review over on iTunes and over on Stitcher. And on that note, I think it's time to cue Barbie. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) Okay. Are they all gone? Uh, Is is everybody gone? (laughs) Huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay.